Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com for faith, fellowship, and love. What are you doing this Lent? The St. Paul Center is streaming their newest video Bible study for free starting Ash Wednesday. Based on Scott Hahn's renowned covenantal theology, this is a study no one should miss. Invite your friends, Catholic or not. Don't miss your chance to see this premium study for free. Go to stpaulcenter.com to sign up today. With CMF Curo, you don't have to compromise your faith to get great health care. Finally, there is a pro-life option that respects and engages your Catholic faith with a community that supports you in living health care fully alive. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.com slash podcast. Welcome to Hilaire Belloc's Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In this episode, we consider James I of England. James I, as you might remember, is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and the successor to the throne of England after the death of Queen Elizabeth I. James I of England is also called James VI of Scotland. He's also the monarch after whom the King James Version of the Bible is named. So here is Hilaire Belloc's chapter on James I of England. James I of England. James I of England struck at the beginning of the 17th century that note which was henceforward to affect all modern life so profoundly, and that note was the independence of nations from the moral judgment of the church. James I of England stands for that nationalist principle which, in the succeeding 300 years, completely conquered. Today, everyone, for the moment, accepts the principle that the nation is sovereign and lay, completely independent of every international control. The modern nation is not only completely independent, but admits no religious definition. Any citizen who prefers his allegiance to a religious body to his allegiance to the nation will be regarded as a traitor. Religions of all kinds are regarded as the private affairs of individuals. When the citizens differ among themselves upon religion, it is the duty of the state to keep the peace between them, but not to affirm itself the guardian of any one set of doctrines. Such, undoubtedly, is the present situation of Europe and the extension of Europe to the American continent and in the various European colonies and dominions. Nationalism, then, is for the moment enthroned, and James I, at the beginning of the 17th century, when the great boiling mass of the religious quarrel was beginning to crystallize into nations Protestant and Catholic, inaugurated that full practice of nationalism. It was launched under the name of the divine right of kings, 
And the first official and public statement of this sort was made by Cranmer, the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, at the coronation of little Edward VI, as early as 1547, 56 years before James I came to the English throne. The doctrine had been formally enunciated in a loud voice from the altar steps of Westminster Abbey in the sermon which Cranmer addressed to the little boy king on his enthronement. Cranmer reminded him that no power on earth could claim any rights over the King of England, and he said this, of course, as a direct challenge to the papacy. Hitherto, it had been admitted throughout Christendom that quarrels between Christian nations were subject to the general moral authority of the Church and to ultimate appeal to the papacy in case of specific disputes. But the point about James I is not that he began this nationalism, but that he inaugurated its full and undisputed practice. At the end of that generation, not quite fifty years later, it was accepted everywhere that the religion of a state must follow the religion of its government. At this point, it is important to understand how this phrase, which sounds to us so quaint, the divine right of kings, is really identical with our most modern nationalist doctrines. In the time of James I, rather more than 300 years ago, men talked of the thing in terms of the rights of princes, that is, monarchs, rather than in terms of the rights of nations. But it applied even then just as much to states in which there was no prince. It applied to an independent democratic republic like Geneva, or an aristocratic republic like Bern or Holland, or to any one of the free cities of Germany, whether these were governed by a few rich men or by public opinion. The operative word in the sentence is not king, but divine right. They meant the right to govern with private responsibility to God alone, and not to any general organization of Christendom here on earth. James I himself made this perfectly clear in the speech which immediately followed his coronation. He claimed the right to call himself Catholic. The Church of England, of which he was now the head, uses that term in her formula and recites it in the fundamental creed of Nicaea. James underlined this point with all his might, intending by this emphasis to reconcile with his complete sovereignty, if it were possible, that half of his English subjects, that minority of his Scottish subjects, and that overwhelming majority of his Irish subjects, who were fully Catholic in tradition. James did not at first desire to persecute that religion, as William Cecil had done in the name of Elizabeth. What he did want was to get everyone to take the oath of allegiance, which declared him to be the completely independent head of everything within his realm, clerical and lay. It is interesting to note that James was, at one moment of his reign, in active negotiation with Rome, to see whether some formula could not be drawn up which would get over the difficulty of the oath of allegiance, which was required of all his subjects. If some set of words could be found which would satisfy the abstract papal claim to depose a monarch by relieving his subjects of their oath of allegiance, some form of words making quite clear that acceptation by all subjects, clerical and lay, of the full sovereignty of the monarchy and its freedom from any kind of superior international power, he would have been content. But no such formula was found, it is significant that he should have made such efforts to discover one after his violently open break with Rome. Most people think of James I as a man steeped in Scottish Calvinism because he had been brought up under the strict rules of the Scottish Kirk. This is a great error. 
He had indeed been brought up in the main under the rules of the Scottish Kirk, but during the earlier years of life, when character is formed, there was a struggle as to whether that religious organization or its opponents should get hold of him. His own mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, had died because she was strongly Catholic and because she represented the Catholic cause. And James himself always had a personal leaning, if not to the Catholic spirit, at least to Catholic individuals. His opposition to the church was political rather than doctrinal. He prided himself on his learning, especially in theology, and it is only fair to admit that he did not pride himself without some cause. He was a very widely read man, and one of high culture, though of displeasing and probably vicious character. He regarded pretty well any tenet as debatable, save that one tenet which roused him to wrath, the supremacy of the Pope in moral matters, even over sovereign princes. It is impossible to say what would have happened in the way of Catholic toleration under James I, but for the action of that man of genius Robert Cecil. He was the second of the Cecils who governed England. His father, William Cecil, had taken over the management of the country in 1559, trained his son Robert to statecraft, and was succeeded by that son. Without a break, it was Robert Cecil, controlling the government at the end of Elizabeth's reign, who had brought James to the throne. For the succession to Elizabeth was disputed, and the Queen herself had named nobody. So James came into England from Scotland with little knowledge of English ways. He talked with so strong a Scottish accent that it was not easy to understand him, and he brought with him a group of Scottish companions highly unpopular in England. It must be remembered that Scotland had been the hereditary enemy of England for centuries and was still regarded as an alien nation. James depended more and more upon this statesman, Robert Cecil, who not only had the very highest talents as a statesman, but was privy to all the secrets of the governing class around the king. He held firmly in hand a universal spy system, and was adept, as his father had been, not only at discovering plots against the crown, but at creating them by the use of secret agents, and nursing and fomenting them once they had started. Now it was Robert Cecil's prime object to prevent a Catholic reaction. The whole policy of his family and tradition was the gradual imposition by force and trickery of the new religion upon the English people. They had so far succeeded that when James thus came to the throne in 1603, quite half of the English were opposed to their ancient faith. Most of that half were no doubt indifferent to religion, as were many on the other side. But in 1603, Quite half of England was, upon the whole, anti-Catholic, and it was Robert Cecil's business to make all of England anti-Catholic in time, or at any rate, if that should be impossible, to make so large a proportion of England anti-Catholic as to render the full return of the faith out of the question. Whether Cecil invented the gunpowder plot or not will always be disputed. There is no positive proof that he did. All that we know for certain is that he knew all about it just after it started and nursed it carefully. Gunpowder was then a government monopoly, and yet the conspirators brought it openly across the Thames in large quantities, and all their movements were known. Cecil exposed the plot just at the right moment to produce the most effect, and it is from that date, 1606, that the tide turns and that England tends to become more and more a Protestant country. 
Belloc is referring here, of course, to the famous gunpowder plot in which a group of Catholics led by uh, Guy Fawkes and some other conspirators planned to blow up the Houses of Parliament uh, with the king and his family and all the parliamentarians inside and thus produce a a Catholic revolution. Uh, The plot was discovered uh, and the conspirators were tried and hung. Cecil himself died rather early in James' reign, only a dozen years after the great sensation of the gunpowder plot, but by that time his work was done, Catholics were hopelessly divided in England, and no longer the bulk of the nation. Meanwhile, James, for the nearly twelve years in which he still had to live, hankered after toleration. What he wanted was not only a quiet realm, but a peacefully united one. He married his daughter to the very foolish Calvinist German Elector Palatine, who tried to usurp the kingdom of Bohemia and fell into disaster. But he did everything to marry his only surviving son, Charles, to one of the great Catholic reigning families. He failed to make the match with Spain, but succeeded in arranging one with the royal house of France. In the marriage treaty, it was stipulated that Catholics in England should be free to practice their religion. He did what he could to prevent the butchery of priests, and altogether he was the originator of that Stuart policy of attempting religious truce, which is one of the chief accusations against that dynasty raised against them by the later official historians. James I and his son after him, and both his grandsons, Charles II and James II, all worked for toleration, not because they regarded religious toleration as a good thing in itself, but because they thought it a good policy for the realm. However, above everything else in the eyes of James I, the complete independence of the English crown must be preserved. And it could only be preserved by supporting and continuing the Protestant policy of his predecessors. Therefore, he stood for the divine right. He watered and nourished that plant until it took firm root, and since his day, it has spread its doctrines everywhere, so that today under another name, nationalism, it is quite undisputed, with the consequences which we see in the culture all around us. Thank you for listening to this abridged version of Hilaire Bullock's Characters of the Reformation. Don't forget to go over to my blog, read my blog posts, listen to the other podcasts which are there, and if you can, help to support it by becoming a donor subscriber. Thank you for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at MyCatholicHealthcare.com slash podcast. That's MyCatholicHealthcare.com slash podcast.